Well, good morning. I think uh, it's more than possible to hear that scripture reading this morning, regardless of where you're coming in, and, and think, what on earth is going on, right? I think for those of us who are here, and maybe uh, you've been with us from the beginning, but when we announced we were preaching through Revelation, it's texts like this that made you think, why are we spending time in this book? I don't understand it. I have a hard time seeing how this could be um, something beneficial for the Christian life. Others of you might be here and you're skeptical of the claims of Christianity. We're glad you're here. We planted a church so that those who are skeptical could come and hear. And I hope that this morning affords you an opportunity to hear why Christians hold to the word, hear value from this, even from texts like this. So regardless of where you're at this morning, I really do urge you to um, open your ears to the text and hear how this might be beneficial for you. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to need one this morning especially, every week, right? It's good to have the Word in front of you. But if you don't have one, uh, we have these ESV Scripture journals out there on the table. You're welcome to take one. You're welcome to take one even if you have a Bible, but you're looking for a place to keep notes of Revelation as we study through them. This is our gift to you, and you'll find today's Scripture on page 46 as we get into this together. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning, for this time to gather, to open your word, and we come to texts like this, Lord, and our immediate uh, reaction to this can oftentimes be maybe discouragement for not understanding, maybe, Lord, wondering how this could apply, but we know that you've given us all of the scriptures, we know that you've given us uh, this for our own good. We pray, God, that you, you would, through your word, make your gospel known so that we can um, just share in life with you, that we might hear and believe, we might repent and believe, that we might uh, be convicted of sin, and that might, might generate repentance and belief in the gospel this morning for all of us. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, when somebody is said to be aping someone, you know what that means? To be aping someone? O- Oxford English Dictionary defines aping as imitating the behavior or manner of someone or something, especially in an absurd or unthinking kind of way. All right, so um, it it probably has its roots or its origins in the animal itself. We've all kind of seen, and it's an old expression, but you've all kind of seen videos of somebody like, they're with a chimp, and they they smile, and the chimp smiles, and they raise their hands, and the chimp kind of mirrors. In an unthinking kind of way, they're imitating. That's kind of the idea here. So aping, imitating something else, especially in kind of an absurd way. And this is an interesting verb, especially when you get to C.S. Lewis's depiction of the end in his final book of the Chronicles of Narnia. In his book, The Last Battle, it begins with a treacherous ape. This is the last book in the series. It begins with a treacherous ape named Shift, who along with a donkey named Puzzle, stumble upon a lion skin. It's floated down river. And Shift... The ape gets a treacherous idea because the creator king of Narnia, the one uh, whom everyone has heard stories about from the very beginning, the one who is known as the the one true king, though there are kings of Narnia, a line of kings of Narnia who are men, they all answer to or are under the authority of the one true king. His name's Aslan. Aslan's a lion. Okay. He's a lion, and Shift begins to consider the reality that, you know, Aslan hasn't shown up in person in this kingdom for quite some time, it seems. He's not really anything, perhaps, that should be concerning to them. And yet, hey, look, people are going to turn to something for their ultimate authority, right? 
We know this. So they're going to turn somewhere for 30. They have to. We all do, right? So he dresses Puzzle, the donkey, in the lion's skin, which I think is just this perfect word picture of what it looks like when the world tries to offer you some kind of hope that looks like God. It's like, a, it's like trying to pass off a donkey for a lion. But okay, so when he does this, when the ape dresses this donkey in lion skin, uh, we read this dialogue. You look wonderful, said the ape. If anyone saw you now, they'd think you are Aslan, the great lion himself. I doubt it, but okay. Um, that would be dreadful, said Puzzle. No, it wouldn't, said Shift. Everyone would do whatever you told them. I don't want to tell them anything. But think of the good we could do, said Shift. You could have me to advise you, you know. I could think of sensible orders for you to give, and everyone would have to obey us, even the king himself. We would set everything right in Narnia. But isn't everything right already, said Puzzle. What, cried Shift, everything right when there are no oranges or bananas? Well, you know, said Puzzle, there aren't many people... In fact, I don't think there's anyone but yourself who wants those sorts of things. There's sugar, too, said Shift. Hmm, yes, said the ass. It would be nice if there was more sugar. Well, then it's settled, said the ape. You will pretend to be Aslan, and I will tell you what to say. What, what will become of us if, if the real Aslan turned up? I expect he'd be very pleased, said Shift. Probably he sent us the lion skin on purpose so that we could set things to right. Anyway, he never does turn up, you know. Not nowadays. Okay, so here we see the beginning of, in the story, the aping of Aslan. Something that would become horribly destructive in ways that even shift the cruel tyrant. And certainly his dim-witted mouthpiece puzzle couldn't possibly know. And, and I think Lewis writes this section, and he has in mind three sets of two in this section, right? So he begins with, um, at the beginning of the aping of Aslan, you have two beasts. Two beasts, an ape and a donkey, who set out together with these two oppositions against the people of Narnia. Two oppositions, right? So to both deceive, and, and you start to read even the deception there in that dialogue, right? He's kind of starting to deceive. So deception and destruction. A lot of destruction comes from this. So ape and a donkey, two beasts, Two oppositions to deceive and destroy. And in this story, there are two calls for um, the people of Narnia to see what's actually happening and to respond appropriately. The same is true in Revelation 13. I don't want to oversimplify the text. There's a lot here. Uh, And I think this is the right way to organize it for us this morning. Essentially, what we have are three sets of two. Okay, Three sets of two. But before we see those sets, we need to remember where we were in the story last week, because I do take these narratives to be sequential, okay? In other words, when we, we've talked about this before, but when we come through Revelation, it's really important to understand, right, that oftentimes, you'll, because John's seeing so many visions, some of these things are sequential, some of them are not. Some of them, in other words, are a new vision that John's experiencing for the first time. It says, and then I saw, right, and it's not a continuation of the last vision. It's kind of a new thing. I don't think that's happening here. We always have to let the context decide. We can't let some system that we're trying to force the text decide whether or not this is like a a continuous movement or a new thing. But I I do take these narratives, according to the text, to be sequential. In other words, this isn't a new vision starting over for John, but it's a continuation in many ways of the vision that we saw last week in chapter 12 as Matthew 
preached for us so well. So what do we see at the end of chapter 12? Well, we saw this dramatic scene of Satan being thrown to earth, okay? The consequence of being thrown down to earth for Satan is that he no longer has access to God, all right? And yet he's in a rage in this story because, as commentators point out, his power is restricted, his time is limited, and it turns out he can't do anything about the son of the woman. The son of the woman who came and who's victorious, he can't do anything about it. Right? His hands are totally tied with that. And not only that, but, but we actually hear proclamations of his demise in the text. And so now he's thrown down to earth, and, 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 and he's standing on the shore at the beginning of chapter 13, not being able to pour out his rage against God. Right? So th- th- this dragon, the devil, Satan, he has, um, he has wrath to pour out. He has rage. He's enraged. He's in a fury. But he can't pour that wrath out on God for a lot of reasons, but he's also been thrown down from the heavens. No longer having access to him. So what does he do? He turns his, turns his attention, he turns his rage, he turns his wrath toward mankind, specifically God's people. He can't get to God, he's going to come at God's people. And it's here that we see these three sets of two in the text. Because first what we're going to find is the, the, de- the devil, Satan, summons two beasts. Right? First set of two is two beasts. Beast out of the sea, beast out of the earth. Along with them, we see two oppositions against the people of God. Each of these two beasts wields this like, destructive force against God's people that's particularly and imminently threatening. Okay? And he, that's where we see the aping of God. What we come to discover is anytime something looks to subvert God or um, oppose him, it almost always does so by trying to take his place trying to mirror him in various ways, promising things that he would promise, but in false and destructive ways. So we see like, we're going to see together the aping of God, but by the end, we also find two calls for the people of God in the midst of this opposition. So both of these sections dealing with both of these beasts ultimately ends with a call for the Christian life that the text holds up to us. And those calls, listen, that's the center of the, that's the, the primary purpose, the central theme of these texts. The central theme isn't like cracking the code to discover all the parts of these details. The central theme is found in the calls that end both sections. So we're going to need to look at those together. Okay, so two beasts, two oppositions, two calls. The thing is we're going to have to take each one in turn as we go. So let's set our attention on the first of the two beasts, just beginning with verses one and two. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Why don't you the point of apocalyptic, right, is for us to, to imagine some of the imagery, all right? So, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, with diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And t- uh, to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his great authority. So, so we're meant to imagine this, but we're not to ima- meant to imagine this in a literal, overly literalistic kind of way. We're meant to imagine it so that we can draw from the symbolism that's here in the text and come to the conclusion of what the author is trying to tell us. And as we see that, first we see this beast out of the sea. It's the first set of twos. Comes out of the sea. This, this beast is noticeably, outwardly troubling and threatening for a number of reasons in the text, but the first reason that we can see that that's the case is that it does, in fact, come out of the sea. Why is that important? Well, we've talked about this a lot before, not just here in Revelation, but this last summer when I was preaching through the Psalms, we talked about it. We talked about it um, when we were preaching through the gospel accounts, all right? We've talked about it a lot, but this imagery of the sea in the ancient Near East throughout the scriptures was often used to talk about chaos, violence, volatility, evil, 
especially. This was true even for like coastal seafaring communities in the ancient Near East who would often have strange stories from the chaos of the sea as a part of their culture. They would view the, the sea with a kind of respect because of the, they, they knew, they understood quite well, the capacity of the sea to turn like this in a moment's notice into a threat, right? So uh, even that's, that's true even among seafaring communities, but this imagery as the sea representing evil, chaos, violence, volatility, man, that's even more pronounced among non-seafaring communities like the Jewish people of the ancient Near East. And so the fact that this beast comes from the sea, this is a way symbolically of expressing that it's a manifestation of evil and chaos. It's not hiding its evil. Like, it's apparent. It's clear. It's obvious. Okay? That's the idea. Uh, plain to anyone who's paying attention, right? Okay, so if you remember last week, Matthew helpfully pointed out seven heads, ten horns on the dragon represented his authority. Right? This, is a, this, is, this beast comes with a kind of false authority. He does have some authority, but it's, it's this false, twisted authority. Now it appears pretty clear that he's given his authority also to the beast out of the sea because he, this beast out of the sea described in the exact same way. All right, same terms. Coming out of the sea with the authority of his master, the dragon bestowed upon him. Now, this imagery of ten horns, seven heads, names on the heads, you know, and, and this, the rest of chapter two, uh, verse 2 there, that's gonna, we're going to come back to that. We're going to press pause because in chapter 17, the angel is going to talk to John about this beast in particular, and he's going to tell us exactly what a lot of this means. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to use that to my advantage because I have a lot to get through and say we're going to actually come back to that. But for now, what I'll say, uh, I'll just say that by the time we get to 17, it's pretty obvious where this beast with the seven heads, heads come, comes from. First century readers who hear in chapter 17, and you have to take my word for it for now, but we'll get there. When they hear in 17 that the seven heads of the beast actually represent the seven hills, and that's exactly what the angel, what the angel tells them, they actually represent seven hills, First century readers know exactly what that means. I mean, everybody in, in the known ancient world knew what the seven hills meant. It's the Roman Empire. The seven hills of Rome was commonplace, first century language and imagery. And so coming out of Rome, we see this one who bears the authority of the dragon. He operates under the authority of Satan, under his authority, and comes as one who really seeks to stand in the place of God, to stand in the place of Christ with, with, in particular. Standpoints of Christ in particular. With diadems and horns, he tries to pass himself off as the true authority, parodying the description of Christ from chapter 5, if you remember some of the same images in terms of diadems, horns. So this beast out of the sea, in other words, is, who, who is it? It's the Antichrist. This is the Antichrist. So then the question is, who is the Antichrist? All right. A lot of ideas here, but hang on. The next two verses help us understand, I think, what's happening here. Starting in verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Okay, admittedly, okay, it seems like a strange description, the beast you know, this Antichrist is one who appears to have a mortal wound but then miraculously raises from the dead and as a result everyone wants to follow him. Like, what's going on here? Well, from my perspective, all right, I do not believe we have reason in the text here to predict that this is a coming figure in the future who will appear to have been killed but then somehow miraculously survive and then we'll know along with all of these other details like, you know, a microchip or barcode in the skin or a rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem that he actually is the Antichrist because all of these things in Revelation are coming together. I, I don't take that 
to be the right interpretation. Now, you might disagree, and that's totally fine. I'm totally okay with that. Let me give you my, my interpretation of this text. What I see is simply what John has already said in 1 John chapter 2. And that, that verse in 1 John 2, so this is something he's already talked about, really functions in many ways as a key to reading John's writings on the end, all right, especially here in Revelation. So if you're familiar with 1 John, you'll remember he's already written this, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. So a lot of people read this and they're like, John was wrong, right? I mean, he had an over-realized eschatology. He thought he was living in the end times. We find ourselves 2,000 years later. He wasn't living in the end times. He just had an over-realized eschatology. He was wrong. But that's, no, no, that's not what John was saying. He wasn't saying it in that sense. In what sense was he talking about it? Uh, well, D.A. Carson writes this of Revelation chapter 13. I think it's right. He says, the power of Satan expresses itself in antichrists, plural, in concrete historical opposition to God's people. Let me say it again. All right. The power of Satan expresses itself. How do we see Satan at work in the world around us? The power of Satan expresses itself in antichrists, plural, plural, in concrete historical opposition to God's people. In other words, here we have described for us what is happening now happening in, the, in, in this world between the resurrection of Jesus and his second coming. And I think, okay, I'm going to come back to this a lot, but I think there's a sense in which we get ourselves in trouble because we tend to so futurize the book of Revelation and all these aspects where we're you know, reading our newspapers and looking into the future and all these things are going to happen that we, don't, we, we, we kind of miss, this is happening now and we need to be ready for it now. Like now, this is for us to know and to believe and to see What's going on? So what's happening? Well, Satan is active in stirring up trouble on the earth, working through men who do evil deeds again and again and again. And yes, to a degree, probably with heightening intensity. Now, here's what I don't think that rules out. I don't think that rules out a coming future Antichrist. I don't think it rules out a future Antichrist that ushers in the return of Jesus Christ. I don't think it rules that out. One of them has to be the last one. You know, many Antichrists will come. One of them will usher in the end, right? Uh, So I'm not saying there is no future Antichrist. I'm simply saying that what John, the author of Revelation, has already written is is different than this. It's not some kind of this futurist, look at all these signs. We've already heard that Antichrist is coming. Many have already come. Many more will come throughout earthly history up until the very end. How do we see that in this text, okay? Um, what, What do we do about this? Well, rather than a prophecy related to a person who has a mortal wound and comes back to life somehow. And, you know, interestingly enough, if that's the case, there are stories, there, there were stories after Nero's death that he had come back to life. So that's a legitimate thing. We have uh, documented historical evidence that after Nero dies in the 60s AD, um, there's a rumor that he's actually alive and that he's going to return with a vengeance, right? So, um, so that's, that's a first century rumor that some people think John's referring to you, I kind of, I think Nero in a lot of ways is a a very compelling description of what is going on in the text, and I think John may have him in mind throughout a lot of this, but I I doubt that's what he's talking about here, because by the time John's writing this, I think probably the 90s AD, um, okay, Nero's been dead for a long time, and he hasn't come back. So so what, what do I think is happening? Well, rather than that kind of a prophecy of someone who's wounded and comes back, 
What we have here instead, I think, is simply the reality that over and over and over again in human history, we see a celebratory belief that the beast is finally dead, that persecution has ended, that, that we did it, that we're victorious, right? Um, I, th- I think we see this throughout the Old Testament to an extent, but I, but I also think throughout church history in particular, since the resurrection of Jesus, we've experienced this because I think that's what this is talking about. Um, only to see it rear its ugly head, there's this celebratory belief, then he comes back. So an evil, wicked ruler rises to power. He's killed. Humanity celebrates as though they're free of it. Only to see him come back, see, see a wicked, evil ruler come back into power again. I think there's this idea that we have that if we just abolish the right things, do the right things, set up the right kind of rules or systems or reforms or regulations, that we can usher in utopia, right? And it's like, no, the beast keeps coming back. Human sin is not fully and finally dealt with yet. Okay, so, okay, um, a perfect example, World War I. Anybody remember? Well, you don't remember, but anybody remember from history books? Anybody remember from history books? Uh, what was World War I heralded as? The war to end all wars, right? It's the war to end all wars. Once we have this war, there's no more wars. How could there possibly be another war? World War II happens just a couple of decades later, and, and, that, and all of a sudden, we're, you know, Hitler raise, rises to power right on the heels of World War I. In fact, it's what set up Hitler's rise. And so in the text here, I think we have something of an exasperation and an astonishment on the part of humanity. Bowing to the beast and eventually kind of saying, and this is the temptation for us, right? It's like, okay, who's like the beast? Who can fight against it? I think there's a lot of Christians who come to the point in their faith where they start to deconstruct and walk away from their faith, in part because it's like they get so much grief from Antichrist. They get so much grief from the surrounding world system and culture, and it's like, uh, I'm just tired of it. Who, who can, who's like the beast, right? Um, who, who can defeat him? Who can fight against this? Who can fight against this? Actually, I hear that kind of a feeling from, Christ, from young Christians who, are, who live in this world and try to operate in this world, who live, who, you know, I, I want to believe the Bible, but, but, you know, I'm out in this world, and who can fight against this system? So there's this almost like astonishment that leads to a bowing of the knee, so the first beast is the Antichrist, the beast that rears its ugly head throughout human history. In John's day, currently, it's rearing its ugly head or heads through the Roman Empire, the Seven Hills, all right, oh, very clearly. But remember, we're talking a lot about the Roman imperial cult, the view of the day that the emperor should be worshipped. Okay, but here's where we see the first of two oppositions. So this beast, this first beast comes with a first opposition, namely blatant destruction and persecution. Okay, against the people of God specifically. But blatant destruction and persecution. Verses 5 through 10. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given, it over, uh, given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Okay, so here again, we see, we saw it in chapter, the, the last couple chapters, we see this period of about three and a half years, right? Three and a half years. 42 months or 1,260 days, Three and a half years, time, times, half a time. 
These are all phrases that are used in biblical apocalyptic literature to refer to the same thing, this number of three and a half years. So, so you know, uh, 42 months. So 42 times 30, 30 being the ideal uh, calendar, uh, uh, 42 times 30 is 1260. So this is all a way of expressing three and a half years. And during this time period of three and a half years, we keep hearing about this sharp, intense, all-out, full-court press of tribulation and wrath from this beast directed toward the people of God, unrelenting. And I have to say, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with Paul Burr, preached a couple weeks ago, with his treatment of these dates. In fact, Paul's illustration that he brought to us was perfect, I think. I'm not sure if you remember, but Paul rightly pointed out different cultures at different times have different numbers and dates that would have a known particular meaning. This happens more in Revelation than we realize because sometimes we view it through a, a 21st century lens. But okay, uh, he, he, Paul referenced 9-11. So in our, in our culture, in our time period, we hear 9-11, it has a specific meaning. It's super helpful, super helpful. But, but actually... Um, I was even more helped when Paul said, what about the numbers 112263? Because I have to be honest with you, I was like, uh, what happened on 112263, right? Because I, I didn't, uh, I, I was born in 1980. When he said JFK, I was like, sure, okay, that makes sense. But I didn't know, like I didn't live in that time. I didn't have the same experience with those numbers. Someone did who lived through that event, who remembered where they were, all that kind of thing. And this is why when we read apocalyptic, we can't just dehistoricize it. Right? We can't say, oh, 112263, that must mean, and then put our own, import our own meanings. No, it had a meaning to the original audience at the time. These numbers, these images, you know, the symbols that we see in Revelation, we have to understand, they bear a certain first century context that actually has meaning. Like, people in the first century read it, and they, 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 their mind goes to a certain place here, and yet we often treat, it, treat these texts as though a first century audience couldn't have possibly understood it, because it used these numbers and images that they would be extremely familiar with to actually mean something totally different that happens 2,000 years from now. You know, like, I don't, or thousands of years from now or whatever, right? So I don't think that's the most helpful way. Um, we, we have to be really careful not to disconnect these symbols, these numbers, these images from first century context. And I think that's the case when it comes to these three and a half years, 42 months. I think this is standard apocalyptic symbolism that a first century Jewish audience would have been more than familiar with representing, as Paul said, this time period between 167 and 164 BC that all of the Jewish people are very familiar with. In fact, even today, if you ask Jewish people, even a very secular Jewish person to tell you about the Maccabean Wars, they'll tell you about it. It's a part of their culture. It's a part of their ethos, right? Um, and during this time, Antiochus Epiphanes, and I can share more of the story during the Q&A, but I just don't have time to get into it, Paul, Paul talked a little bit about it already, um, so you can go back and listen to chapter 11, but um, certainly, he w- you know, you read chapter 13, and then you read the events of Antiochus Epiphanes, this man who, the Seleucid Greek who took power in, in 167 BC, um, and you read about these 42 months and all the things that this Antichrist does in 13, and it's like, okay, that's, here we have a fit. Here we have something that certainly would have been on the minds of a first century Jewish reader, okay? Um, so when the first century reader sees 40, 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, time, one year, times, two years, half, half a time, three and a half years, all of them meaning the same thing. Uh, remember, in Revelation, he's using different images to talk about the same thing. Happens a lot. It's happening here too. All right, their mind, what, what do their minds do? They go back to the exact same period of 1260 days or 42 months, time, times, half a time, in th- three and a half years, intense tribulation, 
from one who attempted to set himself up as God and oppose everything about the one true God, violently oppressing the people of God. That's, what, that's where their minds are in the first century. That's where it goes. And the idea here, I think, is that those 42 months of Jewish history represent now what we face as Satan rages against the world and the people of God and inspires some to rise up against God's people over and over and over again, bringing destruction and persecution in its wake. And I think the point is also that someday this will come to an end. Right? So, so just like the ancient Jews celebrated the reality that the Maccabean Wars drew to a close the rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, that his rule was limited, we can celebrate that Jesus is going to come and that the rule of this beast is, is limited. It will come to an end. These 42 months, just like the first 42 months came to an end, these 42 months will come to an end. And so... The first beast, the Antichrist, first opposition, blatant destruction or persecution against the people of God. And now we see the first call. So, after telling us, right? So we just read in verse 9, many Christians both already have and will in this time of intense persecution go to captivity and be slain by the sword because of their testimony. Listen, that's happening now in places in the world. Christians are in captivity and they're being slain by the sword for for their testimony in Jesus Christ. And, you know, Paul and I both referenced this in this series, but more Christians have been martyred in this way in the last 200 years than the previous 1,800 years combined. That's just reality. So this is happening now. It's happening now, right? Um, So how do we, you know, what are Christians to do in the midst of this? So after telling us that this is happening, verse, uh, verse 10, the last part of it, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, John writes. Here is a call. What is this? What is, why is John telling us this? Well, because here, in this description, is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is why it's so important for Christians right now. Like, here's what I think this means. This first call is for the Christian to realize that though it faces the wrath of Antichrist, and though that wrath will be poured out by way of blatant destruction and persecution, our call is to remain faithful to the one who in the end will be victorious, because he will be victorious. And so we remain faithful. He will bring this time to an end, and so we remain faithful. In other words, I think it's asking, what do you put, and I think it's asking all of us, right? So regardless of where you're coming in this morning, what what view you hold, it's asking, where do you put your trust? Because I think the Christian life holds out a different kind of hope. But I think a lot of Christians don't live in line with that hope. They live in line with hope in other things. And I think a lot of non-Christians put their hope in other things thinking that they'll get something similar, and in fact, it offers something backwards. And so the, the Christian life holds out a different kind of hope. Okay, so the question is, what do you put your trust in? Like in our day, when we don't like an outcome, what do we, what do we do? Because I think, you know, our culture is a very polarized culture. You have people who just like flock to the extremes in our culture. Why? Why do people just like immediately knee-jerk go to extremes? I think it's because of fear. Now, I think even, even from within the church, we see this kind of division. And I think this happens because everybody's afraid. They're afraid of different things. Everybody's freaked out, right? And their fear drives them into these, drives them into these very extreme places. Um, and so in our day when we don't like an outcome, what do we do? Often we resort to uprising and violence. We don't like the result of a court case or the way something was handled, the way, uh, you know, no reform is taking place, the way that we think reform should take place. So we take to the streets in violence. We don't like the results of an election. 
so we take to the streets in violence. Or in some sense, we, we put our trust in chariots and human power. If only the right person was in office. If we could just vote the right person in office, persecution would end for Christians, right? If we just put the right person in office, don't you know that the tribulation against us would end and we'd be given, you know, religious freedom, right? So, like, now, am I saying that politics doesn't matter? No. Am I saying, am I saying that, am I trying to say that um, we discount all earthly attempts of putting down evil? Of course not, of course not, of course not. But, you know, what does the text say? When that happens, for some reason, we're all astonished to find that even when, we, even when we do that, even when we win that election, or even win that war, World War I, World War II, we're all astonished to find that the same problems just keep rearing their ugly heads, right? Again and again, um, right? We, we cannot save ourselves from this thing is the point. Voting for the right candidate won't save you from it. Again, it doesn't mean we don't involve ourselves in politics. I think we do as Christians. I think we should, but it won't save you from the beast. Wars won't save you from the beast. That doesn't mean that war is never justified. Somebody had to stand against Hitler, but it doesn't end the activity of the beast, satanic power to bring this kind of evil. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't end satanic power that expresses itself in antichrists, plural, in concrete historical opposition to God's people, as Carson said. Okay, so the first beast, beast out of the sea, antichrist. First opposition, blatant destruction, persecution. First call, Faithful perseverance and trust in God. In the midst of that opposition, in the midst of that persecution and destruction, we trust in God. We don't put our trust in horses, we put our trust in God. And we recognize, with patience, with patience, that though this doesn't look like what we think it should look like, we we need to be patient um, and and put our trust in in the Lord, okay? Uh, But now, now we see the second set of two, a second beast, and with the second beast comes a totally different approach because I think you're right to read the first section and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If the, if the beast is so obviously blatantly that bad out of the sea, how's anybody following him? Well, okay, so look at the second beast. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. So the first beast came out of the sea. It was noticeably outwardly troubling and threatening, right? The sea's unpredictable, it's violent. It stands for evil chaos. But now we have... A beast that comes out of the earth. It doesn't seem as intimidating, right? It's like a lamb. What do you think of when you think of a lamb? Well, biblically, there's an imagery there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it seems more gentle. It's more passive at first glance. Ask a first century seafarer whether being on land or at sea was more unpredictable or dangerous, right? And you get the idea. It's a pretty straightforward answer. While the sea symbolizes chaos, the land symbolizes a kind of stability. Like when chaos happens on land, it's usually because you got kind of too comfortable and didn't expect it. Whereas at sea, you're kind of looking for it. You're kind of braced for it. The same is true here. The second beast is going to be identified through the rest of Revelation, I'm going to argue, as the false prophet. That's what I think this text is describing. So first beast, Antichrist. Second beast, this person known as the false, this, this figure known as the false prophet. In fact, throughout Revelation, you have what I've already mentioned is the unholy trinity of sorts. Like Tom Schreiner talks a lot about this in his commentary, a false trinity masquerading as the true God made up of the dragon, that's Satan, already been identified for us, the beast out of, out of the sea, the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, the false prophet. And, and there's kind of like, a mimicking, an attempt to mimic God. Like, just like the Trinity has a structure of subordination in which the Son does what the Father gives Him to do and says what the Father gives Him to say, and the Spirit then goes and proclaims the Son, here we see the Antichrist does what Satan gives Him to do. And the false prophet proclaims the Antichrist. 
Look at verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast, beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So there's an aping of God happening here. But the way he does this is just decidedly different than the way the Antichrist goes about his business. It has to, I think, right? Whereas the evil of the Antichrist was apparent against the people of God, the false prophet comes in sounding an awful lot more reasonable. And this is where we see the second opposition. So the first beast, Antichrist, second beast, false prophet. Here we see the first opposition, blatant destruction, persecution, and the second opposition, underhanded deception and persuasion. Underhanded deception and persuasion, starting in verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of, in front of people. And by the signs that it, uh, it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who were not worshiping the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here we see a picture of what I very much believe, listen, has happened throughout church history and will continue to happen throughout church history all the way to the end. All the way to the end. This is where I think, listen, listen, listen. Okay, it's, it's okay if we have a futurist interpretation. But let's not discount kind of an, at least, at the very least, let's not discount an already not yet. Because I think here's the problem with setting our eyes so, so much on like trying to read our newspapers and see signs from Revelation. We're distracted. We have our, our mindset that this is all future when in fact it, it's happening right now and Christians everywhere are not prepared for this. And yet this is at our doorstep in Western culture. We see a picture of those who come to deceive and pull God's people away from truth. And, and when people come to do that, they typically do not come aggressively, but reasonably. When people come to pull God's people away from truth, they don't come in kicking the door down and, you know, give me everything you have. When people come in to do this, they come in, you know, someone comes in to steal from you in that sense, they come in talking to you about pyramid schemes and why you're going to make a lot of money. They put their arm around you. They pull you in a little bit. They make you promises. They speak, they, they speak kindly and softly. They more whisper in your ear, right? Um, so the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're a good team because they're kind of pulling the old good cop, bad cop routine on everyone. You know, one of them comes in all hard and threatening. The other puts his arm around you says, listen, I'm not, I'm not crazy like this guy. Right? I can help you so that you don't have to deal with him, but you've got to talk to me. You've got to grant me some concessions here, or there's not going to be a lot I can do to keep Psycho over there in control. You're going to have to deal with him. But just like with good cop, like, I don't know, okay, just like with good cop, bad cop, you've got to remember, despite the fact that the good cop is much more winsome and kind, and he went out to get you a cup of coffee and a donut, and I don't know any of this from personal experience, it's just the movies, okay, but... Um, he seems to be far more reasonable. I promise, Isaiah, I don't, I don't know. He um, seems to be far more reasonable than the guy who says he's going to take your head off. Both of them are working together. Listen, you have to understand, they both have the same goal. They're a team on the same mission, right? Neither one are on your side. I'm not trying to... Okay, okay. But, but we live in a time in which 
I fear this is routine as it relates to what's being described in the text. There are people who, who want to say, listen, no, 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 I'm not denying the Bible wholesale or anything. Come on, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not denying the scriptures. I, have a very, I personally, I, have a, I, I know some very harsh things were said over there by these people. But, but some harsh things need to be said. And, and frankly, you know, I have a very high view of scripture. You know, a, a high respect for it. I'm reasonable. I just think that when the Bible says this over here, it's offensive and it's antiquated. And it's kind of like, it's probably not what God meant. For all we know, it's the best wisdom of its time when it was said. But like, there's this trajectory out of that in the Bible. Don't you see? Like, this is reasonable, right? Come on, did God really say? Just bow the knee over here and I promise you, you will surely not die. I'll make all of this go away. And, and, and to an extent, he's telling some half-truths just like Satan was in the garden, right? He's telling some half-truths because he will kind of make all of it go away. People who are marked with the beast, who, who bear the mark of the beast, who belong to him, who, who end up bowing the knee and following him, they don't receive the Antichrist's wrath. They don't receive the beast's wrath. They face a different wrath, right? Um, so the first beast is the Antichrist. Second beast is the false prophet. First opposition, blatant destruction, persecution. Second opposition, underhanded deception and persuasion. First call, faithful perseverance and trusting in God in the midst of suffering. And now the second call, the final call, prudent discernment against false teaching. Right? Faithful perseverance for the first part, prudent discernment for the second. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. This call, so, so why did we just tell you this part? Why, does John, why did John just tell the story here about the second beast? Because it calls for wisdom. He's calling you to wisdom. He told you about the first beast because it calls you to perseverance and endurance, patience, trust in God. He told you the second part because he, he needs you to, 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 to use wisdom, discernment, right? This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is... 666, and you all say, really, Jeremy, you get to 666 when you've been preaching for 41 minutes. Um, So, okay, I already mentioned this mark of the beast from chapter 13. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I already mentioned this mark of the beast from chapter 13 in a different chapter. Chapter 7, if you remember, when um, the people receive a mark or a seal on the people of God, the 144,000, receive a mark or a seal on the forehead. And so the same idea is reinforced and strengthened here. I do not believe that we're talking about a symbolic mark on the forehead for these people in 7, but a real mark, literal future mark on the forehead for these people in 13. I think that gets us into all kinds of problems. I think the, 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 what the text is holding out to you is saying, look, look, look. So I'll repeat this part, but everyone's going to face wrath. Everyone's going to face some kind of wrath. The question is, whose wrath are you going to face? So you'll either face God's wrath or Antichrist's wrath. You'll either face God's wrath or the wrath of surrounding culture during the time in which you live as a Christian who doesn't really like what Christianity teaches. Jesus says the world will give you trouble. I give you my peace, but the, you know, you're at peace with God through me. You won't receive God's wrath, but the world will give you trouble. From the world you'll take wrath. So you'll either face God's wrath and a Christ, you'll either face God's wrath or the wrath of the surrounding culture. The point is, everyone wears a mark. That's what John's getting at here. Everyone wears one. Like, in apocalyptic, uh, in apocalyptic literature to begin with, we already have, like, we've talked about this before, one of the marks, one of the traits of apocalyptic literature is that it's very black and white. You're either one or the other. There's no fence writing here. In fact, it's probably the false prophet who wants to put his arm around you and tell you, ah, you can kind of be in both places. But according to Revelation, that's just not reality. You either belong to God or you belong to Satan. That's really what John is getting at. Everyone has a mark. 
Are you gods or do you belong to this world? Those are the questions. Those who belong to this world will face God's wrath. As for 666, this is simply a first century game linking numbers to a name. Right? And I do, with the mark on the forehead and wrist, just go back to chapter 7 and listen. I talk a little bit about what that meant in a first century context because it has a clear meaning that they would have already been familiar with. But for 666, that's also a first century game linking numbers to a name. Uh, so each Greek and even Hebrew um, character has a number that's ascribed to it. And so people would say, I'm in love with a girl whose number is 541, right? And there's no way to trace the number to the name, right? So it's kind of like a, like a way to keep something secret, right? So first century uh, game. But rather, um, in, in, this, in this sense, the idea isn't an interpretation of the text that gives you a number so that you can figure out some coming antichrist in the future. Like that, that's been happening for about the last 200 years where there's this idea, well, 100 years, where there's this idea that there's this future antichrist coming and we can figure out who it is. And so all kinds of theories you know, have been out there about who this is. And I know now because it's 666 and this person's 666 and we're trying to figure out who it is in the future and that is just not the point of the number. It's, I think it's likely actually someone that first century readers were very clear in their minds who was meant. I think that, uh, if I had to guess, I don't really know. If, if I had to guess, I'd say Nero. But I don't know. I have some thoughts on this. Come to the Q&A. I don't have time to go through it right now. Um, if you have questions or if you're interested in that, come to the Q&A and I'll share some more. But I do think it's someone who who's referenced who in the first century they're familiar with, they kind of know what John's talking about. I'm not entirely sure, but I think the point here is not to discern a future individual. The point is to discern false teachers now, false teachings now, right? Identification of some future beast won't be nearly helpful for the church now as identification of false teaching will be, which we need now. We need that now. And that's true in every generation. So how, okay, the concluding question, how do we do this? How do we respond to blatant destruction, persecution, of antichrists, plural, with faithful and endurance and perseverance? How do we live in a world in which we're persecuted? How do we live in a world in which we face culture's wrath? The world does give us trouble with patience, trust in God, not trust in chariots or other things. How do we do that? How do we also respond to underhanded deception and persuasion, the false teacher who throws his arm around you, the realization that, you know, just because someone's speaking kindly and sounds reasonable doesn't mean I don't have to double-check the things that they're saying to me. Their whisper seems gentle, right? That doesn't mean that what they're whispering to you is true, and it doesn't mean you shouldn't examine it because they could be telling you something pretty destructive, and that happens in all kinds of ways. Okay, so, so how do we respond to underhanded deception and persuasion of false prophets with prudent discernment against false teaching? How do we do both of those? Well, we do it because we serve the one who has authority over both. So do you remember in chapter 10 when the mighty angel comes from the presence of God, this rainbow over his head, this, this, uh, this glory from the throne room, right? He comes with God's authority. He comes with God's revelation in hand, right? With God's revelation. And as he comes with the, the revelation of God, what does he do? This mighty angel. He, he plants one foot in the sea and one foot on land. Here we have Satan now in 13 standing on the shore, summoning the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the land, out of the earth. But God's already claimed authority over all of it. He already has authority over all of it. He's already been made victorious. That's why in chapter 12 we're reading about Satan being thrown down to earth. We're already reading about the victory of Christ. And where do we see his victory ultimately? Where do we see it centrally? At the cross, where that wrath of God 
that should have fell upon us, that wrath of God that will fall upon all those who belong to the beast, all those who reject Christ, actually fell upon him. He's not like distant from it. Every time we use the word wrath, we think like, oh man, God's like this person who's so mean and he's distant from this wrath and hates mankind. No, Jesus stepped into that wrath and experienced it like nobody else would, would so that we could, we could now, by faith in him, be free of that wrath and have life in him. Like he actually experienced it so that we could receive his eternal glory. Come back tonight. I'm going to be giving a lecture on uh, the fourth um, statement of faith from the EFCA on the nature of Christ, where we're going to ask the question, why is Jesus uniquely qualified to be mankind's redeemer in this specific way? But we also talk about this each week and remind ourselves of this reality each week at the table, where we look at the body body of Christ broken for us at the cross. The blood of Jesus poured out for us that we might not face God's wrath and that he might go with us as we face these oppositions, that we might be reminded of his goodness to us in the gospel. So if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, we, ask, we invite you to participate in this meal with us by coming and taking the elements and sitting down. If you are not a believer here this morning, participate uh, by observation and ask, ask us questions, right? Why do we do this each week? But, but we call you now to, to participate.